Okay, friends, let's, uh, I hate to stop the conversation. Love seeing you folks get to know each other. Book of Acts. We are in, we are in chapter 22. We left off at the end of chapter 21. Let me just sort of review uh, and talk about this section of the book of Acts. Uh, we're in Jerusalem. Paul has done all of his missionary tours. He's had three missionary tours in the book of Acts. He's made his way to Jerusalem. And you remember what he was carrying with him to Jerusalem? Money. Yeah, you read in, in Paul's letters, and you see it here in the book of Acts, he's collecting support from among the non-Jews, the Gentiles, scattered around Greece and what we call Greece and Turkey. And uh, he's... He's getting aid for the Jerusalem church. They need it. They've had some suffering. There's been some famine. Um, but he also, more importantly, is trying to connect the Jewish, Gentile, Christian world. So he goes to Jerusalem. We, we looked at uh, him. We looked at what happened to him when he got to Jerusalem last week uh, in chapter 21. Uh, he visited James and James, head of the church there in Jerusalem, who was called Camel Knees because he prayed so much. Uh, he was the half-brother of Jesus. He is the one that um, told Paul, Paul, and Paul and James are on the same page, but James says, there's been a lot of talk about you here in Jerusalem, that you're running around the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, you're, you're running around the Gentile, the Greco-Roman world. You're inviting people to come to Jesus Christ. But you're telling the Gentiles they don't have to observe the law. And the way that gets rumored back to the um, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem is, Paul, you're telling them, you're telling them disrespectful things about the Word of God about the Old Testament, the laws, law of Moses. You're telling them disrespectful things about the sacred temple. So um, there's a lot of people in Jerusalem sort of hot for Paul. Uh, and of course, some of the Jewish Christians from Asia, we call it Turkey, probably on the West Coast, Ephesus, some Jewish Christians showed up in Jerusalem to stoke the crowd against Paul. And... Um, they 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 are they're they're successful. They start the rumor that not only has Paul been disrespectful of the law, not only has Paul been disrespectful of the holy temple, he's even brought a Gentile into the temple beyond where the Gentile could be, court of Gentiles, brought brought a Gentile into the court of the Israelites, court of women Israelites, and um, they even said they 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 named him Trophimus of Ephesus, because he's been seen with Paul. Paul brought some Gentiles with him to Jerusalem. Well, when that spread, um, a riot broke out. Um, there, the Romans are watching over, literally watching over the temple from the Antonio Fortress that's built and affixed to the northwest corner of the temple. Um, built by King Herod the Great. So they can look down when they see a disturbance. They see a disturbance, so they go and they, um, they, they apprehend Paul um, to stop the disturbance and, and for Paul's safety too. They apprehend Paul and they take him back into the Antonio Fortress 
as he's going back into Antonio Fortress with the Romans, um, he speaks to the, to the commander in the Greek language, Paul would have known Greek. He speaks in the Greek language that shocks the commander. Um, he speaks in the Greek language to the commander, and believe it or not, he says, let me address the mob. Um, and so that's where we pick up. He, he, Paul has been apprehended by the Romans. He is um, being taken into the barracks, the Antonio Fortress. But before they take him in, he asks to address the crowd of angry, mostly angry Jews who are accusing Paul of not observing the law and being disrespectful to the law and being disrespectful to the temple. Again, a basic, basic, basic thing you need to know when you read the New Testament. Paul never told Jews who came to Christ that they should quit keeping the law, quit acting like a Jew, quit living like a Jew. He never told Jews that. And part of what you see in this section is how Jewish Paul is. Um, he's actually in the temple going through the rites of purification because he's been hanging out with Gentiles all over the world. So Paul himself is acting very, very Jewish, but that fits what we know that Paul was teaching. He, he never taught that Jews who came to Christ should all of a sudden quit being Jewish. Um, you know, if you find kosher beneficial to your spiritual life, let go of the bacon. If, if you find keeping the festivals beneficial to your spiritual life, Celebrate Sukkot, Shavuot, uh, Pesach, or pa Passover. And there are, there are some Christians that find those very helpful. Um, Paul was clear, though, and this is what the people back in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, couldn't understand. He was clear that you shouldn't lay the law on top of Gentiles. In other words, you don't have to, even though Jesus is a Jewish Messiah who came in fulfillment of the Jewish law, who came in fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, he came to the Jewish people, he came for the world. So you don't have to be Jewish first to embrace Jesus. Most of these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem did not agree with that. They said you had to be a full convert proselyte to Judaism if you're going to do this other Jewish thing. And Paul's saying, no, no, you don't. Gentile, and I'm grateful we're all Gentiles, I think, in this room. Gentiles can come to Christ, and um, they don't have to keep the law. Remember three times in the book of Acts, the Jewish Christians, at least under James, there in Jerusalem have a conference. They mail it out. It was repeated again last week. How Jewish do we Gentiles have to be? We got we got to stay away from idolatry, not eat the blood, animals are strangled, and observe Jewish sexual morality. Uh, thus, that's that's repeated three times in the Book of Acts. The reason for that is, um, as as we know from Galatians and throughout Christian history, we've always said that for those of us in Christ, the ceremonial and the civil law has been fulfilled. Remember, Jesus said, I come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The civil and ceremonial law. You can eat pig, you can eat shrimp, you can wear clothing and mixed fabric, you can touch a football. Um, I don't have to sacrifice animals on the altar during worship. So all that civil and ceremonial law has been fulfilled. We've been very clear on this for 2,000 years. Moral law still stands. So don't yank down the Ten Commandments. Keep them up there. They're a good example of the moral law. The moral law still stands. 
and that includes sexual morality. We've been very clear on this for 2,000 years. And again, when the Jerusalem church sent the letter out, had the conference sent the letter out to the Gentile world, they were very clear on this. You don't have to be more Jewish than that, but you do have to observe those things. Well, obviously in Jerusalem, there's some very, very devout Jews who have come to Christ, and they don't like the idea that Paul has opened wide the gate for Gentiles to come to Jesus without going via the Jewish faith. So um, we pick up, Paul is standing on the steps. He's going to address the mob. And that's where we start out. Look at chapter 22. Um, Chapter 22, verse 1 starts with the speech. This is the first of six, because we're in this unique section at the end of Acts. He goes to Jerusalem. He gets arrested. He lingers in prison because he wants to go to Rome. He goes to Rome. That's where the story of Acts ends. So this section, this whole section from about chapter 20 on is, is Paul's last journey to Jerusalem and then his journey to Rome. So um, this is the first of six defenses that you will hear from the lips of Paul. Because from this point on out, he's just been been, uh, drawn before rulers, and he has to give his defense. It ends, the book of Acts ends with him in prison in Rome, but I'm sure whatever his defense he gave in Rome had to be similar to these six defenses that you're going to hear. Um, So, chapter 22, verse 1, Paul starts speaking. Brothers and fathers... He's referring to the Jewish community as brothers and fathers. Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew, or really Aramaic, a dialect of Hebrew, um, they became even more quiet. So when he starts talking, he's talking in Aramaic. Um, he, by, even by this point, Aramaic was sort of the street version of Hebrew, that's why if you watched Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, that was all in Aramaic. That's street Hebrew. Uh, at this point, Hebrew, pure biblical Hebrew, was just used in worship, the reading of the Torah, sort of like it is today for us. You hear it in synagogues and worship settings. But that dialect, Aramaic, was what they spoke. So he's speaking street, street Hebrew, and they start listening. And notice the first, at least in my uh, translation of the, of the Greek, the first four words, I am a Jew. He never ceased being a Jew. And what the book of Acts is showing you is he was a good Jew. He observed the law. He just said Gentiles didn't have to, not Jews, Gentiles didn't have to. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. Cilicia is the region of Turkey where the earthquake hit recently. It's in the south east corner of Turkey. Uh, The region um, is Cilicia. Tarsus is a university town there uh, in in Cilicia. So so Paul's very educated. He was educated in Tarsus, then he was educated in Jerusalem. So if there's anybody perfect to take the the gospel of this Jewish Messiah to the Gentile world, it'd be Paul. He was educated in a Gentile world in Tarsus, and then he went to Jerusalem to be educated. So he's saying, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city. We know that Paul eventually ended up in Jerusalem. We don't know if his family moved there. We don't know if his parents sent him there for boarding school. But he ended up 
in this city, Jerusalem. He was educated both in Gentile and Jewish world. Notice this, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. You already met Gamaliel in chapter 5. He was probably the most well-known, respected rabbi of Paul's day. So he's saying, I, I'm, I'm, my Jewish, what he says, he says this in other places like Philippians and 1 Corinthians. He's telling these Jewish folks, my Jewish credentials are better than your Jewish credentials. That's why he's telling them. Um, by the way, just as an aside, in Philippians, when he says my Jewish credentials are better than your Jewish credentials, what does he then go on to say? I consider it all dung or loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. But, you know, if you're, going to, if you're going to have a contest as to who's the most Jewish, Paul would win it. You're not told here, but you're told elsewhere. He's trained under Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. Paul was trained as a Pharisee. Again, remember where you first met Paul in the book of Acts? At the martyrdom of Stephen. They were killing Christians, and he participated. He was a zealous Pharisee. His Jewish credentials are impeccable. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law, Pharisee. Not just according to the manner of the law, but the strict manner. He's a Pharisee. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. He's complimenting the mob. I've said several times in the book of Acts, as we looked at Paul, some of us could learn how to be tactful from Paul. Some of us could learn how to um, be effective in reaching people from Paul. Um, this is a mob he's talking to who tried to kill him, who wanted to beat him to death, who tried, and then we'll try again to stone him, by the way. They tried to stone him. He's complimenting them, um, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. He would say it's a misguided zeal, but he's saying they're zealous. Notice verse 4, I persecuted the way. The way, that's the term that occurs multiple times in the book of Acts. That's our earliest title. We were people of the way. And that, you know, we, we have to kind of make educated guesses of where that came from. Um, almost certainly one of two places. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But also, and it's probably both of the above, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But also in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Jewish faith talks a lot about halakha which is the way we're to live according to God. So he's saying we really have the right way. We're the people of the way. Um, that's our earliest title. We don't use it anymore, but that's our earliest title. I persecuted this way to the death. My, my translation even has way capitalized. I don't know about yours, but that was our earliest title. I persecuted this way to the death. He probably still is carrying some pain that he helped kill Stephen first Christian martyr. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and he was zealous. You know, he, he, he was zealous. He was going after both sexes if they, if they were receiving Christ. Verse 5, as the high priest and the whole council of elders, the high priest would have been Caiaphas, council of elders, that's, that's the Sanhedrin, can bear witness because they're the ones who gave him the letter, the authorization to go to Damascus to find some more Christians and bring them in. Uh, so they, they, they know how zealous he was. They know what he did. They know that he killed Christians. 
Uh, from them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So again, he's not only saying his Jewish credentials are impeccable, his Christian-hating credentials are impeccable. So you talk about a conversion. Yeah, he went from hating Christians to becoming one of us. We, we saw how when Ananias um, in chapter 9 sort of helped lead him into the Christian faith, the Christians were dubious of letting Paul in because they feared he was just probably infiltrating the Christian community because it was a night and day change in Paul. But, but Jesus can do that. I assume you know that. Jesus can do that. Anyway, verse 6. So here, here we get the story of Damascus, Paul's vision on the road to Damascus. Again, like three times we're told how Jewish we have to be, three times in the book of Acts, you may have noticed, you get this story. Um, book of Acts is repetitive. The ancients knew that one of the best ways to teach is repetition. So the first time you read about the, the, uh, the call of Paul on the road to Damascus, uh, was in chapter 9, and it was just Luke recounting it in the story of Paul. Now you're going to hear the story of the call of Paul on the road to Damascus from the lips of Paul. Verse 6, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, hottest part of the day, sun highest in the sky, about noon a great light. So it had to be a light great enough to outshine the sun. Uh, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Persecuting who? Me. You go after the church, you're going after Jesus. We need to work on our theology of the body of Christ. We are the physical presence of Jesus in the world now. We're the only physical presence of Jesus in the world. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. Um, so you come at us, you come, you're coming at him. The New Testament makes that very, very clear. We're the body of Christ, animated by the Spirit of Christ, doing the work of Christ, or Christ is doing it through his Spirit through us. So that's why, you know, it, Jesus doesn't say on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting me? And that probably got Paul's attention. And I answered, who are you, Lord? Probably there, Lord, just a title of respect because this brilliant, blinding light from heaven is coming. And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, and again, whom you are persecuting. Um, again, you should have a high ecclesiology, a high theology of who we are. We're not just an organization that sings religious music. We are the body of Christ, the mystical bride of Christ in the world. So you come at us, you reject us, you, you, you be apathetic about us, you can transfer all of that to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is very clear on this. Um, that's the theology of the body of Christ. That's who we are. Um, so Jesus says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now watch this, verse 9. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. If you look at all three accounts given in the book of Acts, uh, it's not real clear what the crowd with Paul saw and heard. 
Uh, if you put them all three together, here's what you can do to reconcile them. They heard a noise. Only Paul heard the words. They saw a light, a blinding light, but only Paul got introduced to the light. Uh, you, you kind of get that impression in, in all three accounts of the road to Damascus. Uh, they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? Yeah, if, you, if you understand who he is, the next sentence out of our mouth should be, what do you want of me? Um, so Paul, Paul has an amazing call here on the road to Damascus. And I said, what shall I do? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And that's where Ananias and all that comes in. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Uh, and one Ananias, you get all this in the first account, and one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law. Paul says, I'm a Jew. I'm trained by Gamaliel, the person who brings me into the Christian faith and baptizes me is someone who is observant of the law, Ananias. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who live there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said to me, The God of our fathers appointed you to know this will, to see the righteous one. That's a title that gets used for Jesus in the New Testament. Where it comes from is the book of Isaiah, where in Isaiah you're introduced to the suffering servant, the suffering servant that God would send into the world to do God's work. He's referred to as the righteous one uh, in Isaiah. And that's why, again, Jesus, in fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies, including the servant, suffering servant oracles in the book of Isaiah, uh, he, he is referenced as the righteous one. And to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness. Notice what Ananias is saying to Paul. You will be a witness for him to everyone, not just Jews, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of Jesus. Um, and this is interesting. I hope some of your translations do better here. You actually can, you actually can translate that, call on his name, and then rise and be baptized. Faith has to precede the baptism. Um, but my translation makes calling on his name uh, the final section of this sentence. So here is Ananias, a good Jew who believes in Jesus, bringing Paul into the faith through baptism. So again, his, his, Jewish, his Jewish credentials are impeccable. And even as he's coming into the Christian faith, he's being brought into the Christian faith by Jewish Christians. I'm sure Ananias was probably keeping kosher. I'm sure, and I mean, if you've lived your whole life thinking pork was disgusting, you all of a sudden are not going to start eating it. Uh, I'm sure Ananias, like Paul, spent his whole life trying his best to keep kosher, trying his best to keep the Jewish holidays. Remember, we're in Jerusalem because he wanted to be in Jerusalem, not just to bring the money, but he wanted to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost, the Jewish festival of Pentecost, Shavuot. So um, he's saying, I I'm as thoroughly Jewish as any of you, but I've added Jesus to my Judaism. 
Um, so that's the case he's made. Look at verse 17. When I return to Jerusalem. By the way, between verse 16 and 17, three years elapse in Paul's life. You have to go to the book of Galatians. If you go to the book of Galatians, first chapter, start reading about verse 15. That's the one and only place in the New Testament where you read that after Damascus, Paul goes for three years into the desert. Now, in the book of Damascus, I mean, the book of Galatians is referred to as, it's usually referred to as Arabia. Now, Arabia is not the Arabia you know. The Arabia in first century was just on the other side of the Jordan. It was the Nabataean um, kingdom. If any of you have ever been to Petra in Jordan, that's the Nabataean kingdom. So when I go to Petra, and it's an amazing stuff, all that stuff carved in the rock and all that stuff. When I'm in Petra, I think about Paul. That very well could be where Paul spent his three years. But other than the book of Galatians, we don't know about those three years. But notice he sort of, again, there's a lot of similarity between Paul's last journey to Jerusalem and Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem. And here, Paul did what Jesus did. Uh, Paul went, Jesus went for 40 days. Paul went for three years into the desert. I think he had to do some reflecting. I think he had to do some studying. I think whatever. God had to do something to prepare him. In the book of Galatians, you hear there's Damascus, three years in the desert, and then he goes back to Jerusalem and, and meets the apostles. So that, you got to put all that in between verses 16 and 17. Verse 17, those three years have passed in the desert. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was doing what? Praying in the temple. He didn't stop any of that stuff when he became Christian, or he embraced Christ. I fell into a trance, a religious ecstatic experience, and I saw him saying to me. So when he's back in Jerusalem, Galatians doesn't mention this. Galatians just says he goes and sees the apostles. But here we're told when he's back in Jerusalem, um, after his three years in the desert, before he's beginning his worldwide ministry, he goes to the temple. He's praying in the temple. I mean, that's very Jewish. He's praying in the temple, and he has a vision where Jesus shows up to him. You know, these, these letters should probably be read in your Bible if you have a red letter edition. So um, he's in a trance. He saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So what's he doing here? He's telling this Jewish mob, Jesus told me y'all would do this. So, um, yeah, he's making his case. Verse 19, And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, was Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So he's, you know, relating his story here. Um, he's saying that all the Jews and all the synagogues, let me just real quickly, because I run into people who are a little confused by this. There's only one temple historically. We found maybe a second one in South Egypt, but just ignore that one. Some Jews went to South Egypt and tried to create a temple. Just forget that one, unless you travel to Egypt and they tell you about it. There really was only one temple. They're on the Temple Mount. 
There was one built by Solomon, destroyed by the Babylonians. The second one's rebuilt. Uh, gets renovated by Herod the Great. That's the second temple. That's the second temple that Jesus would have known. When you go there today and you hear the, you see the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, that's all remain. That's all that remains of the of the second temple because it eventually, forty years after Jesus' crucifixion, is destroyed by the Romans. No temple's been rebuilt. Um, one temple, that's where animal sacrifices took place. That's where all Jews around the world, uh, as long as there was a temple, they tried to make their way back to Jerusalem. Uh, that temple, that piece of geography, it is the holy city. I'm still trying to figure out why Charleston's calling themselves the holy city. Every time, in the last two years, I've gone back to Charleston, and I see all these signs about the holy city. I even saw one sign, which I appreciated. Last time I was there in January, the holy city is praying for the holy city. I don't know why Charles is called the Holy City. Maybe you can tell me later and tell me. Why is it called? A lot of churches. I bet Charlotte's got them beat. But anyway, okay, okay. When I, when I reference the Holy City, I mean Jerusalem. Anyway, so you, you see here that he, he's, he's, he's at the temple. There's one temple in the Holy City. Synagogues were developed during the Babylonian captivity, we think. Um, but they thought it was a good idea. Synagogues are like Jewish community centers. That's why there's no animal sacrifice. Never have been animal sacrifices in, in synagogues. Uh, they're Jewish community centers uh, for the purpose of Jewish community life. If you've ever been to Shalom Park in Charlotte, that's where they took the Reform Synagogue and the conservative synagogue and kind of put them next to each other down on south on providence road they put them next to each other and built like a jewish community it's like a little center for jewish culture and community synagogues synagogue is just greek for gathering place it was a gathering place for jews and they gathered there for community life they would gather there for study and they eventually start praying there after the temple falls but synagogues are all over the world there's only been one temple um if you see a temple, if you see a synagogue today named temple, is coming out of liberal Judaism, and that's their way of saying to you they don't want to ever rebuild a temple because they're a little put off by animal sacrifice. But if you see a, a synagogue that is named something besides temple, like Beit David or something, Beit just means house. That's probably a conservative group who is still yearning for another temple to be built in Jerusalem. So there's synagogues. Synagogues develop in the time, you know, Babylonian captivity, right after the time of Jeremiah when they're way out of the land and they're a long way from the temple. They build these for places of gathering. They probably decide they were a good idea. So by Jesus' day, there were even synagogues all over Jerusalem. And uh, you still have a lot of, you can find synagogues, ruins of synagogues all over the Holy Land today from the first century. So he says, you know, all the synagogues have been talking about me. You know, all these Jews, you know what I did. You know what I did to Stephen. Um, but then verse 21, here everything's going to change in this scene. Verse 21, and he said to me, he, he's, he's, he's making sure that you know it was Ananias who told me to do this, that good Jew told me to do this, uh, along with Jesus. Jesus, Ananias, that's the two that comes together, tell me to do this. But verse 21 is what gets, what's about to get, almost about to get Paul stoned. Verse 21, uh, he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Um, there, you're going to see the reaction in just a second, just because he used that word Gentile. Now, again, don't, don't hold your modern Jews accountable for this. 
But in ancient Judaism, they the Bible tells them and us, you're chosen not as privilege. You're chosen for a task. But you know, human nature being what it is, when we get chosen, even though it's for a task, even though it may be a task where you have to die for the world or live as the Jews have lived for 2,000 years, when we get chosen, sometimes it boosts our ego and we get arrogant. And there have been periods in Jewish history. By the way, we Americans have this doctrine called American exceptionalism. That's an American history thing. Go, go study that one. We're exceptional. We're a light set on a hill. And in some ways that's true. I think we're here for the spread of the gospel. We're here for the spread of democracy. We're here for the spread of freedom. So yeah, American exceptionalism, city set on a hill. But we have to be real careful not do what the Jew, Jewish community did at periods in its history. They took their chosenness and it made them very, very proud. You know, instead of just saying, I'm chosen to do something like American exceptionalism, instead of saying, I'm chosen to, to take this God. If they would have read the book of Isaiah well, the book of Isaiah is all about what the Jews know being carried to the Gentiles. You know, they've seen a great light. Um, yeah, but what was going on in Jesus' day, they weren't. They weren't saying, oh, as Jews, we're, we were chosen to bless the whole world, which, by the way, that's what Abraham was told. Your lineage will bless the whole world. Uh, in Jesus' day, that was a high period, and we know this word, that was a high period of Jewish nationalism because they were being ruled by Rome, and they didn't like that. That's why within 40 years, there's going to be the first Jewish revolt against Rome, temple destroyed, and within... Um, 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 30, within 60 years after the first Jewish revolt, there will be a second Jewish revolt. And that's when Rome will say, I'm really tired of you people. And they pretty much destroyed Jerusalem and they banished the Jews from the city of Jerusalem. But so this is a period of high Jewish nationalism. And, you know, that period of high Jewish nationalism, that's why you had Jews in the first century, we know this, they were praying prayers that would say things like, God, I am thankful that I'm not a Gentile or a woman. Yeah, that's how they, you know, women were better off, at least if you were a Jewish woman, that's better off than a Gentile anything. But we were, Gentiles were called dogs. So Jesus and Paul comes at this time of high Jewish nationalism because they're being ruled by Rome. And, you know, there's a lot of revolutionary feel. Um, so the only thing Paul has to do, you know, they know he's running around the world letting these Gentiles benefit from a gift that was given to the Jewish community that is also for the world, but the Jewish community had a hard time warming up to that in the first century because it was a period of Jewish nationalism. So as soon as he just says, both God and Ananias sent me to the Gentiles, look at verse 22. These people go berserk, and I think Paul is painting a picture of their irrational hatred of Jews. Verse 22, up to this word they listened to him. What word? Gentile. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. That's a euphemism to say, let's kill him. Get him off the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks. Now again, Luke's painting a picture of them just being irrational and 
they're going crazy at the, at the use of the word Gentile, but they're also taking off their cloaks because what are they getting ready to do? Stone Paul. Get the throwing arm out there. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, flinging dust into the air. Yeah, Paul wants you to see how irrational, how angry, how mad they are. Evil can do this. Beware of your anger. Beware of your anger. Uh, the tribune ordered him. See, again, here's Rome coming to the rescue of Paul from angry Jews. Uh, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, Antonio Fortress, saying that he should be, watch this, this is the way the Romans did it, examined by flogging. I would say, just can't you just ask me some questions? But they, they thought the way to get the truth out of someone, remember they did it to Jesus, the way to get the truth out of someone is beat them, flog them. That is, um, a flagellum was a handle, wooden handle with leather strips, and embedded in the leather, leather strips would be like rocks, pieces of pottery, stuff to just, you've seen Passion of the Christ, stuff to just rip the skin off your back. And that torture, they thought, would make you tell the truth. So anyway, they're going to examine this Paul by flogging. But watch what happens. They're going to examine him by flogging to find out why, why they were shouting against him like this. See, again, they're shouting in Hebrew. These Roman soldiers are like, is there not somewhere else I can serve Rome? Besides this crazy place uh, in, the, in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. So they're not shouting in Greek. I know they're not shouting in Latin. So they're just trying to rescue. And they just want Paul to say, they want, what, what have you done? Why do they hate you so much? You must be a terrible criminal. So they're flogging Paul. Try to get the truth out of Paul to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when, but when they had stretched him out for, for the whips... So they stretched him out. They probably put him on a rack, uh, or they did. Maybe they put him on a stake, lifted him up off the ground a little bit, and they started whipping his back. But when they get ready to do that, Paul said, watch this, Paul's a smart man. Paul said to the centurion, that's the commander of a 100 soldiers. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned. Well, that got their attention. You can't even flog a Roman citizen. You certainly can't. You certainly can't harm a Roman citizen without a a, a, a fair trial. So Paul is playing his Roman citizen card right here. Um, when the centurion heard this, I'm sure. And by the way, penalty for doing that to a Roman would have been death. Whoever did that to Roman. Romans were very self-protective of their own. Very self-protective of those that had Roman citizenship. So when Paul just sort of drops that in the conversation, things change totally. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. Here we learn some more biography from Paul. So the tribune came and said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? I mean, as far as they can tell, he's just Jewish. He's Jewish. He's from Jerusalem. Uh, but now he's just kind of dropped in the fact he's a Roman citizen. Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul just simply says, yes. At that point, I'm sure the tribune and the centurion were very nervous. Verse 28, the tribune answered, 
I bought this citizenship for a large sum. That's kind of interesting because throughout most of Roman history, except for one little period, throughout most of Roman history, you could not buy Roman citizenship. You could bribe somebody to give you Roman citizenship. So here's the centurion there or the tribune. Here, here are the Roman soldiers that are doing this. Again, what Paul's going to say here is, my Roman credentials are better than yours. So this, the, the soldier here is a Roman citizen because he bribes somebody. You could be conscripted into the Roman army from anywhere across the Roman Empire. So um, here, here Paul is doing about the same thing to these Romans. He's going to make sure they understand. He didn't have to bribe anybody to get his Roman citizenship. Um, so then at that point, inquiring minds should ask, wonder how Paul got Roman citizenship. Uh, so look what Paul says. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. I'm sure for the centurion and the tribune, the blood probably rushed out of their face at that point because they had been beating, getting ready to beat, and they had imprisoned without a trial a Roman citizen who was a Roman citizen by birth. Now what that means, wish we knew more about this, his parents must have been Roman citizens. Now the question will become, how did they become Roman citizens? Maybe his father served the Roman military and was awarded Roman citizenship, but somehow or another, Paul had Roman citizenship. That's why um, you hear this all over the place if you go to Rome. You know, Peter, according to church tradition in multiple places, Peter, how was Peter executed? Uh, crucified upside down. Because they went to crucify him, um, and he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified the way my Savior was. He was crucified upside down. Crucifixion is that terrible, terrible, terrible way of execution the Persians developed and the Romans perfected. Well, Peter's a Jew from the Galilee. So, yeah, they're going to crucify him. How is, um, when, when, when Paul is finally martyred for his faith, how's he executed? Beheaded. He's beheaded. Um, by the way, when I saw, I, I freaked my family out, but I, I will stand on what I said. When I saw that controversy about the new drug they were giving the guy to execute him in Alabama, I just said, we, we should behead. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it freaked my family out. But that is a merciful way of killing. I mean, as soon as this chord is struck, you're gone. So that's why it's a merc that's why Roman citizens should, could be beheaded. Non-Roman citizens could be crucified in a humiliating way. That's why Paul was beheaded. Now they'll also tell you when you go to Rome, his head bounced three times, and therefore it bounced a, a, a spring sprung up. So when they talk about the church of the three fountains, yeah, you don't have to accept that one. Um, could, could have been. God can do whatever. But yeah, but, but the beheading of Paul is well attested because he's a Roman citizen. I still will contend that that's why the, by the way, that's why the intelligent French and the French Revolution created the guillotine. It is a very merciful, if you're going to kill somebody, it's a very merciful way. So if you want to kill me, you're welcome to behead me. I mean, it's a very merciful way. I mean, you have no memory. You hear the knife coming, and you're gone. Because as soon as that back of your neck is, begins to get sliced, it's over. So, yeah, I, let's, if you're going to do it, at least do it in a merciful way. So Paul was beheaded. Anyway, so Paul says, I, I'm a citizen by birth. Um, we just know that. We don't know much more than that. So, again, perfect person to take this Jewish Messiah to the Gentile world. He's trained in Tarsus. 
Gentile city, Gentile university town, big into Stoicism. He's trained there. He has Roman citizenship, but he has impeccable Jewish credentials. So if you need someone to have a foot in both the Gentile and the Jewish world, Paul was the perfect person God had prepared for that. Anyway, he's a Roman citizen by birth. Verse 29, and we'll stop with this. Verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. I'm sure they did. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him without a trial. Um, this is going to eventually get Paul taken to Rome. As a Roman citizen, he can say, I can appeal to Caesar. I can appeal to Rome. So um, that's, we'll stop there. So yeah, they, the Romans take their hands off of Paul when they, when they learn that he is a, a Roman citizen. So, um, you know, I hope that some of your takeaways from this is one, the importance of spreading the gospel. Look what Paul went through, spread the gospel. Um, I hope you also take away from this, you know, that two-thirds of your Bible is Old Testament. We are a new way, different way of being Jewish in the world. We were, as Paul says, we are grafted onto that vine. We are chosen now in Christ to be part of the chosen. So, um, yeah, I ho hope you love your Old Testament. hope you love the faith that comes out of the Old Testament. Um, hope you love the Jewish people, by the way. Uh, because we owe our salvation. We owe the Word of God. Every author in the Bible, of course, is Jewish. Luke was a God-fearer who was Gentile that had started attending synagogue and tried to be Jewish, except he didn't want to be circumcised. So uh, this is about, you can't, you can't get more Jewish than this book right here. And I hope that you notice with this book, this book does stuff to us. This book does stuff in us that no other book will do or can do in us. You know, we've noticed this for a couple thousand years. That's why we say that the Bible is the Word of God. Um, we don't say as some moderns say. Some modern Christians will say the Bible contains the Word of God. We still, at least me, my circle, my tribe, we don't say the Bible contains the Word of God. We say the Bible is the Word of God. Um, because that's what we've been saying for 2,000 years. If you say the Bible contains the Word of God, like I was taught in one of my four schools, one that shall remain nameless, um, I was taught the Bible contains the Word of God, which if you do that, then you say, well, yeah, I like gospel. Sermon on the Mount, that's good. 1 Corinthians 13, hymn for love, that's good. But then you're free to say where God's not speaking in this book. Uh, that's, a, that's a modern Christian invention, such as... This is the Word of God for the people of God, which my staff, because they were, we're all trained to say that in, in my tradition, but they, they've learned not to say it around me, and they, they've broken their habit because they agree with me. We believe this is the Word of God. This is the Word of the Lord without qualifications. It's not just the Word of God for those who choose it to be. It's not just the Word of God for those who are in this family, the people of God. It is the Word of God. Period. And that's why, you know, I, I try to observe things. And when I, 30 years ago, I started hearing people in, in, in my denomination start to say that, you know, my first thought was, they don't say that in the Catholic Church. They don't say that in the Anglican or the Episcopal Church. 
They don't say that in the Lutheran church because their roots are a little deeper. And it's just simply, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, it's not this is the word of God for people who want it to be. That doesn't get it. You know, if, that, if that's your modern reinvention of, of Christianity concerning the Word of God, then go for it. But that comes from a theology that developed in the last hundred years that said the Bible contains the Word of God. You know, you could hear God's voice in certain places. Uh, but again, that's, th then, then the authority sort of becomes you to determine where the authority is found here. Um, yeah, I hope you notice this book does something to us, in us, for us. The other books don't do. Um, as much as I love Flannery O'Connor and C.S. Lewis, their books can't do this in my life. So thank you for giving attention uh, to the Bible. I see some Christians, I see some Christians who try real hard to be Christian without any, without a daily immersion in the Bible. A book just came out by someone who I think is professing Christian. The title of the book is Never Read Another Verse. And um, it, it's all about how, you know, when you read the Bible, I, I was told in my second appointment, you get people reading the Bible, they'll become hateful fundamentalists. Yeah, so if you want that, you can get that book, Never Read Another Verse, and try how to be a nice Christian ignoring the Bible. That, that's just foreign to me. That's far into 2,000 years of Christian tradition. There are Christians trying to be Christians without the Bible as the Word of God. I don't know. Maybe they're getting emails from God. I don't know where they're getting their stuff. This is the only communication I know from God. So thank you for giving attention to it. Let's pray together.